Hello everyone and welcome to What Would The Smart Party Do, the UK's premier RPG podcast. I am one of your hosts, Gaz, and with me, as usual, is my good friend Baz. How's it going, Baz? Very well, mate. I'm the other host, apart from when we've got more than two. So, yeah, <laughs> when we're a squad. <laughs> is, is that what we are now? Because we have a triumvirate. We have, from uh, Third Floor Wars, a third podcaster, Craig. How's it going, Craig? A third party, third four wars, third party podcaster. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Who came it up is. with that dumb name? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Guys, I'm excited to be here. Excellent. And and for both our listeners, in case they're unaware of what it is that you do, do you just want to give us your, your elevator pitch for Third Floor Wars and your own podcast? Yeah, it's a tabletop gaming media empire, I guess. I don't know. But I've got YouTube channel, Twitch channel. I've got a podcast. Uh, I think we connected via the podcast mostly, which is Tabletop Talk. Uh, I bring on creatives, uh, mostly in the tabletop gaming industry, and we talk about, instead of what they make, we talk about how they make it and why they make it. Mm, love this stuff. Typical of an American turning it into an empire already. You've got to make it bigger, haven't you, and more impressive. The not bijou affair here. It's the biggest one out there right now. It's, gr- it's great. I don't think us Brits get to lecture people on empire building, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, we've got Craig on. Because we've, we've chatted via Twitter and other things a few times about various different games and had bits and pieces of conversation, but that's not the right format to talk about games. It's okay to, to get a few likes and shares, but ultimately to dive into games, you need to have this sort of format. We've got long form. We can talk about things that we've all run and or played, preferably both, uh, and kind of dive into the systems a bit. Uh, and we've picked, we've picked three. There's a longer list. We'll see if we get past one. Uh, but as, as you're our guest, Craig, uh, of, the, of the many lists of games that we've got, what, what would you like to start off talking about? I think we should start with Blades. I think Blades in the Dark is is very unique. There's always a good buzz around Blades. So let's start there. Sure. So uh, Blades in the Dark is the the progenitor of many others, but there's many other Forged in the Dark games that go with it now that use the same system, right? So this is a, a game by John Harper. It was unusual, I think, in that it was sort of open playtested for a couple of years. Like, people had the documents, and I think it got to, like, a version 8.2 or something by the time it actually became a thing that was kickstarted and came out. But it's kind of like Dishonored, the role-playing game, even though there is a role-playing game called Dishonored. I think Blaze in the Dark probably does it better. Yeah, I agree. You're, you're essentially a gang of rogues, right, who have a particular shtick. You're in this confined city with ghost wall around it, electric fence that keeps you all in. You can't move out. It's a pressure cooker environment. And you go out and scores to steal, rob, extort, whatever it is that your gang might do. And you kind of build up your gang as you're building up your characters as well, right? So that, that's like the, the headline view of it. So I'll throw it up into you two, first of all. So like, what makes Blaze in the Dark good at doing that sort of stuff rather than, for example, playing a D&D game? And, you know, having a bunch of characters that might include a rogue and some various others of that type. Uh, but why not just play it in a D&D city or in Freeport or somewhere like that? Uh, and how can Blades make that better or why is it different? And I think that, you know, when I get into a discussion with somebody about does system matter, right? And you get into a conversation where somebody goes, well, I'll just do that in D&D or I'll just do that in 5e. I, I go to Blades immediately, right? So Blades is designed to, to tell a very specific type of or to play a specific type of game right it is for it is for heists and that's what it's designed to do and mechanically it's set up to do that and yes you can potentially do heists in 5e you could go play shadow run but this is what you couldn't do is run dnd and blades so it i think it's structurally is built to to do a specific thing and all the mechanics uh, support that yeah would you agree Baz? yeah it's a masterpiece i think it's probably the best role-playing game i have in my collection and i have quite a few <laughs> and um and i've been saying that for a little while and i was kind of nervous that it was just kind of you know being a neophile when blades of the dark dropped and i was part of like the early community and playing it and printing it out when it was nothing more than printouts I thought, oh, maybe yeah, I always do this. I always get a new game and say it's the best thing ever. And then six months later, it's back on the shelf. But that is absolutely not the case with Blade. Um, I keep buying it. It's like every time I go into a game <laughs> store and they've got a hard copy, I buy it again. I must have about five of them. I don't know why I do this. They're all identical. <laughs> but <laughs> it's, um, it is a masterpiece. It's built on the shoulders of Apocalypse World and the work of Vincent and Meg Baker. But I, I don't... I don't worry about that. People always say that. I suppose I've just said that, but I think it's very much its own thing. 
It spawned a bunch of other stuff as well. I love pretty much everything that comes out for Forged in the Dark. So although Blades in the Dark is absolutely laser focused on heists, I do think that the engine inside it is broadly applicable to a bunch of stuff. I mean, specifically, you'd want to play Shadowrun with it, wouldn't you? You really would. Um, I've been noodling around with a hack that's going to be about pirates and ships because that seems so obvious. I thought someone would have done that by now, and they haven't, as far as I'm aware. Superheroes in a city. It, it just goes on and on. And the thing that I love so much about Blades and the system within it is that that kind of two-part play there's a the bit that just feels like a regular role-playing game where you're out and about doing your business and uh, being um, scoundrels and getting into trouble. Uh, or even that is done in a completely different way. But the, the, the downtime element of the game, I love it. I love the light and shade that that provides. I love the fact that sometimes in other games where the GM just has to sit there scratching their head and noodling away on paper to try and figure out what on earth is going to happen... In Blades, you're you're sitting there thinking, how on earth am I not going to let that happen? Right. It's it's just it's a, a story and game engine, in the truest sense, in that it generates more of it. You fire it up, and stories come out of it. And I love that about Blades. I absolutely love it. And in every game we played with a different lens on the setting as well, I think we've hardly scratched the surface. And I've been playing it since the day it came out. Yeah, I think what's neat about uh, the downtime activities, to your point, Baz, is you can you can approach it as well as the rest of the game in, in any way, not only based on what the table is, but based on the mood of the table at the time or the point in in the in the storyline you're in. So mm-hmm. there's times when I do downtime and it takes the entire session, right, With the entire session to go through it. There's a mechanical element that it's procedural in a lot of ways, which much of Blades is. And that's something that I think people need to absorb. I think it's easier if you've never played role-playing games to gronk Blades than it is if you're used to playing traditional games because because of the procedural nature of it. But So you can go through downtime in 30 minutes. Be very procedural. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And everybody goes through, checks their boxes, makes a, maybe maybe makes a die roll or not, spends some resources. Or you can make it a whole session and, and you can get deep into it. You can role play with it. You can, you know, go with it. And I like that. And, and, you know, we often, when we hear discussion of blades, I love that you started here because it's typically it's focused just on the really great mechanics that hold up the heist piece. But I think that uh, the downtime piece gives a it gives a neat flexibility for the table and allows you like if this is what you want to do then let's do it let's do it for this session and two session or three sessions, or maybe your table's like all I want to do is steal shit, <laughs> so let's make that a twenty minute activity downtime activities I want to get to the next heist. Yeah, so I guess I'll I'll be the devil's advocate or whatever or I try and... devil's bargain. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Set set a slightly different thing. So. It isn't like D&D, and, and I like John Harper's games for, for many ways. Like, A Gone's my favourite game in the last couple of years, and that's very procedural as well. Like, yep. the book tells you how to run the game. And this is the same, going back to Apocalypse World as well, and why I, I fall out with a lot of convention games of that, is people don't run the game as the book says run the game like this. They try and run it like, essentially, a D&D session, but using yep. the TD6 mechanic. And that's, for me, that's not really playing the game. Like, it's that system matters thing again. Like, you know, engage with the system. So one of the things that people might find difficult is then getting in the head where there are some procedural things, you can run it a certain way, but also there's room for looseness and doing what you want. And I can see for some DMs approaching this blindly, if they've not played this sort of like freeform game before, is, well, what do I do then? Like you're saying that I've got specific rules in one case, but then I can ignore them or that you can do things really broadly. So what am I supposed to do? like the typical rejoinder is, we'll read the book and do what it said in the book. But, but for a lot of people, like um, that might be difficult. And also things like, uh, you talk about the heist mechanic, is it's got that typical trinary outcome. So you might completely succeed, you might completely fail, but the more often one is the you succeed at cost or you succeed with consequences or there's a bargain to be made or something else like that. So have either of you got like tips for how someone that's relatively new to that style of gaming might come in and think like, where, where do they apply rules rigidly? And when you've got outcomes that you've got to come up with yourself on the spot because you don't plan in advance, you kind of like let things happen at the table and build your consequences off that. How do you come up with things in spurs of moments and, and react to players? So I think for me, a couple tips that I usually give people, because uh, because I cover and talk about Blades a lot, John's been on the show a few times, 
I get DMs and, you know, people asking me, you know, I'm about to run blades for the first time, Craig, what do you think? You know, any advice? My first advice to them is it is crunchier than you read, right? When you mm-hmm. read blades, it reads super free form. We're just kind of wing it. We're going to go loosey goosey. And then when you're the GM running it, you realize, oh, geez, this is actually surprisingly crunching. It's because John has created a very tight machine. They are These are gears that work together very closely. Um, now, what's great about it is it's consistent. So if you might be venturing into and you're like, God, I can't remember how Blades handles this, your best guess is probably close to right because of the, the, the designed consistency in the game. But I was shocked, and I've heard this from more than once, when I run it and I go, oh, wow, like there is a specific way to do this. There's a specific way to do that. And there's very specific to use Baz's language. There's specific levers that that are designed to be pulled. And you'll find the game will break a little bit if you go off book to your point, Gaz, right? It is you're going to want to learn it. So my advice is the first time you run it, do the best you can. You're going to get things wrong. You're going to mess things up. Don't fall into the trap of trying to find it in the book as you're playing. Just take your best guess, keep going, and, and set the expectations for the table. Like, this is the first time we've run Blades. It took me probably four sessions before me and the table felt like we really had our arms around the game. The good news is, is that the three sessions before then, we had a blast, right? Just be ready for that is, is, is my first thing, and, and respect the system. Because it is, I mean, like to your point, it was it was play tested a lot. Uh, and what you're what you're getting is a well oiled machine, and you're going to have urges to make changes. You're going to have urges to to tweak it and hack it. And I'm not saying don't do that, but don't do that out of the gate. Uh, try it as designed. You and because it plays different than it reads, and and there's going to be things that surprise you, and you're not going to really understand it until you play it. Good advice, mate. I mean, not to echo, but to try and build on your answer, I think I would say trust the system. Yes, respect it, but absolutely trust it. The system will look after you. Roll the dice, read the rule, see what happens, and outsource stuff. Um, the GM in in a Blades in the Dark game is just one of the players, and that should be true in all games, but sometimes that gets lip service, I think, very much so in Blades in the Dark. You're, as GM, you're hardly ever going to roll dice. You might build a fortune pool. But generally speaking, the players are going to roll. I mean, the players are telling you what actions they're going to roll. That's a bit of a a mind twist for a great many people. There's not many games that say that out loud. A player gets to pick the attribute. So there's a division of labor in Blades at a fundamental level, which is not quite like your your father's D&D game. So some of the easy ins for that are to ask for rolls a whole lot less often than you might do in a trad game, because every single one is going to open up a brand new chapter or a new possibility. It's going to be like sliding doors, you know. Every single time you ask for a roll, there's various multiple parallel universes are going to open up where things could have happened but didn't. So I think do that. Um, And also, I I refer to this quite a bit, and hopefully we can put a link in the show notes. John Harper has done some really lovely little tutorial videos for the YouTube generation, I guess. Uh, And there's a little eight-minute one that he was uh, talking about recently where he says, if you're GMing this game, you just don't do it the way that you normally do. You're not asking for roles. You're not asking for a success on a dice. What you do, your job is to introduce threats. Um, and that took me ages to get my head around. But once I did it, it was it's so easy. And you think, why haven't I done this in every game ever? So if it were a D&D game and you were the GM, you'd say, the orcs attack, roll initiative, roll to hit my orc, my orc rolls to hit you. In a Blades in the Dark game, if it were orcs, and there's no reason why it shouldn't be, you could just say the orc is coming towards you and he's got a meat cleaver held above his head. He's got a spittle hanging down from his fangs. He looks really angry. He's going to cut you in two. What do you do? And then when you do roll the dice, based off of what the player has said, you've already told them what's going to happen because it's obvious from the fiction what's going to happen. If they blow that roll, they're going to get cut in half. So actually, you're, you're front-loading a load of stuff into the dice rolls where you're not having to decide because it's obvious what the answer is yeah. if you pitch it right. But that's such a skill. That's such a skill to learn because it's not like any other game at all. But that's that's literally all it takes is to just introduce threats every time. Which again, Vince and Meg Baker, you know, what do you do? That's they they wrote that down in big letters in the book. But because it was GM advice in scare quotes, people don't read that because they go, I'm already a GM. Thanks. I don't need your advice. It's not GM advice. It's the rule. (laughs) It makes it work. (laughs) I could not agree more. And I think that um, understanding 
the process of the roles. And again, this is something that's going to take you a little bit of time to get your head around as a GM and as a player. So for example, one of the big things that was uh, like a late click for me that took me a while to get my head around. And it's, it's a slight riff on what you just said, Baz is someone's, you know, or uh, orcs got the cleavers over your head. What are you going to do? Uh, I'm going to, you know, pull out my dagger and I'm going to try to stab them before anything else happens. Defining what success looks like. Mm-hmm. So what is the goal? And that concept of a goal is a big deal. My goal is to kill the orc. My goal is to disarm the orc. My goal is to get the hell away from that orc. So once that goal is defined, then you go, how are you going to do it? And that's where the player picks the attribute, right? What am I, what am I, what skill attribute, whatever, uh, I forget what they're called. Action roles. Action, right, right. What action are you going to take? And here's what's cool, right? So everybody's just like, wow, that player gets to pick any action they want. Like, why wouldn't they always pick the best action they have? And I go, well, here's the kicker. And it's the rule that you're going to gloss over when you read it that you're going to realize is the heart of the game when you play it, which is the GM sets the position and the effect, which is huge. So the position decides, where are you? What is this situation? Are these 10 orcs or is this one orc? Is there people beating the door down behind you with more orcs behind that door? Are there seven of you against this one orc? Are you in a good position? Are you in a desperate position? What is the, what, what is the situation right now? So you establish that. And then effect, which is how effective, how close to the goal is your action role going to be? So if I say I'm going to use my talkie skill to stab the orc, well, I might say, well, you're, you know, you're in a desperate position. This is a pretty bad. This guy's huge. He's going to, he's got a very big, very big cleaver. And your effect is going to be very low. <laughs> if you're going to try to talk this knife into his gut, it's going to be very mm-hmm. low. And that's where the negotiation happens. And, and finally, what ends up happening is the player and the GM get in a rhythm where they, where they, you know, and they may change their action role when they hear the position and effect. And there's also other levers that can be pulled that can affect that. Um, and that gets back to the GM advice. That's something I glossed over when I read it. I did not realize the significance of stating the goal, position and effect, and how really that's the heart of the entire action role. Yeah, and that a lot of that stuff that we've mentioned there speaks to like just good behaviors that could you could translate to other games. So it's things like say what your goal is as a player. Like yeah. don't hide it. There's like some players have got a learned behavior from DMs that have tried to screw them off in the past or whatever they feel it's an adversarial relationship. And they'll kind of like, oh what's what's the captain of the watch's, you know, wife called or something. It's like, well why are you asking that question? What like what what help me as GM work out what it is that you want so I can try and provide the the situation, you know. So uh, yeah, Blaze does a more uh, mechanical version of doing that by including it in the rules, and that the effect certainly something that I have misused in the past and need to sort of like constantly remind myself to get right. Is that when you make your roll and you get that mixed effect of the some consequence, like depending on how dangerous it was to start off with, like that that impacts how much the consequence might be. Yeah. So it might just be that it, it escalates into another conflict. So you make another action roll. So you, you try to talk your way out of the fight with the orc. And he decides he's not having it because you've messed your rolls up. And he says, not only is he going to kill you, he's going to kill your friends as well now because they've all been hanging around to see what happens. And going, oh, he's got this. Oh, no, he hasn't got this. Oh, now we're all stuck. You know that? It's kind of building that up. And it's getting players used to the idea that you will you will fail or suffer setbacks. You know, it's, it's like a heist movie where there's constantly the random guard turns the corner when he shouldn't have done or it's someone else on shift or, uh, you know, all the things that happen in, in TV and other media that we see. I have seen some players struggle with it because it feels like, well, you're constantly putting barriers in my way. It's like, that that's the game. Right. Like The, the game is, you're going to try and break in here to the Dimmer Sisters' lodge and steal their magical books, but like we're not going to make one roll and that's done. There's going to be things happen along that journey, and the fun of the game is the interesting bits and the, the sort of different dimensions that Baz was talking about. Like This could go in different ways, and neither me nor you, the players, know which way it's going to go, but we're going to find that through play. Right. That's the, the magic of the game. Yeah. And, you know, I'll never forget when I had John Harper on the show for the first time, he and I were, uh, were, you know, off camera, off mic, right? We'd stopped recording. And I said, Hey, John, running blades for the first time, you know, what what kind of advice can you give me? And (laughs) he's being a little cheeky, but he said, Craig, I wrote a whole chapter about it. 
Yeah, that's literally <laughs> what I read in that book. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and you know, ha, 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 right? And and then I go back, and, and, and every time, I mean, I've been playing Blades for, you know, four or five years now. Every time I go back to that GM section, I find something new even though I've read it before. And, you know, for example, like people, people say, well, you know, if I'm in a, if they're, if I put them in a desperate position and I've got limited effect, I'm not really sure what the consequences would be. Guess what? It's in the book. Like you can go to the book and you can find, and there's going to be, you, sh- you this, if they're in desperate, this is good. This is going to be the potential consequences and the severity of those consequences. If their effect is limited, here's you know here's a little chart for you to understand what potential consequences are, and, and that's why I talk to people about it being crunchier than you think. By no means do I have a GM screen when I have when I'm playing Blades, but when I'm playing Blades, I do have references uh, that help me with that stuff. Some key things that I'm not going to keep top of the mind. Um, so, for example, if you know I want there's certain things that I can do to add dice as a player to my roles, but it's very specific. There's only certain things that I can do to get those die. And, you know, if I want to change the effect, right? So if I, the GM said to me, it's going to be standard effect and I want great effect. There's very specific things I can do to push that from standard to great. And in the middle of play, it's easy to kind of get confused about, you know, if I do a devil's bargain, what does that give me? If I do this, what does that give me? If I lower my effect to increase, to make my position better, you know, there's, there's the, again, these levers and it, and it's good to have just a little bit of, of reference or maybe some post-its in your, in your blades book as you run it. And again, I'm telling you're going to get it wrong. I mean, I've run 30 some odd sessions of blades. I still get something a little bit wrong, but that's when you source the table to what you, what you were saying, Baz, right? Everybody's going to start doing this together, right? I've got, I've got players that I play with that are really good at knowing these levers and they often will be, will correct me, which is fantastic. Like, thank you. And when I'm coming up with consequences, um, it's not unheard of for me to go, what do you think a good, what, what do you think a good, good, good consequence could be here? And when when you have buy-in at the table, like sometimes they'll come up with stuff. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to get that harsh. Let's let's back it <laughs> off a little bit. Um, it um, and the meta game not is not about winning. The meta game is like let's make this really interesting. And I've got a player in my live stream where we play Blades, uh, Joe, who I love as a player because like he doesn't want the success. He wants the success with consequences because that's the that's the juice uh, of the game. That's what he loves. Yeah. You've got to be happy to fail because it's not a fail. Right. <laughs> the fails are where the good stuff happens. Yeah, I think there is. Um, I think new groups, new groups to blades. Uh, you mentioned very quickly early on, Craig. You said like if you're a new role player, I don't think this is a hard game. If you sat down with an eleven year old and put a player's handbook in front of them or blades in the dark for their first ever experience, take the blades in the dark book every time. Yeah, because then five years down the line, you'll think D and D is weird. <laughs> <laughs> so all it is is we're all coming from different places. But I do think that for some groups, that sense of having to negotiate feels like a like a fail state in the game. Like what what the GM doesn't actually know what's around every corner. There isn't like a world book, although there is a fantastically good setting. But there isn't a world book that says what's around the corner. We don't really know what a dimmer sister looks like, despite that being an NPC that anyone who's played Blades will be aware of. Craig's dimmer sisters will look very different to Gaz's. So people will see that as a kind of like, huh? Really, this sounds hard or silly because like it, the whole thing's made of jelly and I can't get my hands around it. But it is a bit stop-start to begin with. It is a little bit, what's the position, what's the effect? Even good GMs who've been playing the game for ages sometimes forget to say it out loud, what the yep. position and effect is, and they just say, like, you know, roll skulk. Um, but after a while, that negotiation that you have is quite short, but it's also the game you realise that that's also the game. You're all deciding. It's a bit of a writer's room kind of aesthetic, I suppose. You are all deciding. Um, and if some of, you know, the player or the GM in that situation may have a veto if it all starts to go a bit sort of silly or whatever, or the table goes, whoa, whoa, hold back a minute. Doesn't, we're not even talking about an X card here. We're talking about a plot card, I suppose. But yeah. that, that little bit of negotiation is the game. <laughs> and when you realise that, you go, oh, like generating a character is part of the game as well generating your crew that's the game downtime isn't like a board game that you get out between sessions it's the game yeah the whole thing's the game and when you're when you're the gm and you're looking at your notes midweek before the next session comes up and all you've got is like hastily scribbled clocks and index cards everywhere and factions that's the game as well 
that's the solo game that you're playing where you're thinking, well, what, 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 what would my guys do here? What would my gangs do? What's their agendas? How am I going to like start the next session? And that's all you ever need to know is how you're going to start it. Anything else is wasted. Because stuff that comes up in those negotiations is gold because everyone owns it. It's not them just listening to your story. You know what I, lo- I love here is that how long we've been talking about this for uh, coming on 30 minutes now. We've been talking about blades and, and, and <laughs> we have not said the word flashback. And that makes me happy because yeah. every time you hear blades talked about, that's what everybody goes to immediately because it's very unique, the flashback mechanic. And I don't know if we want to get into it or not. Quite frankly, I think it's been talked about enough that we don't. And if you have never heard, this is your first time hearing about blades, Go go check it out. Flashbacks are amazing, and it's a true innovation in the game. But it, but it's so shiny that you think that's the game as a player and things like that. And the last thing I'll say, you say you know you put blades in front of an eleven year old versus a five e. You don't put the book of blades in front of the eleven year old. You put the character sheet in front of them, mm-hmm. and that's another beautiful part. And I think one of the bigger innovations. I think this is where I would argue John has changed the industry. John made us all realize how important the character sheet is. If you have somebody who's never played Blades before, don't give them the book. Just give them the character sheet. Everything they need to play the game is on the character sheet. Uh, Sean Conroy did the same thing with Mothership, right? You can just put that character sheet in front of them, and they've got everything that they need to play. And my other advice is don't download the whole game to your players. Just start playing. Walk through the character sheet. And then introduce the mechanics as they come up and when they matter. And you'll be amazed at how quickly your players will pick it up. John definitely deserves um, plaudits for the, the graphic design and the usability of it. But, you know, I'm, I'm still going to give a nod to the bakers because in Apocalypse World, you have the playbooks. Yep. And, and it's, you know, they don't even call them character sheets, which is the same thing. But, uh, you know, do you have a, a gun lugger or a battle babe or one of the other archetypes? But they're things you can just slap in front of your character. You see, even got like select your name from this list, select your distinctive features from two of these, fill this box in, do that. It's very functional. It's like the old um, BattleTech board game we used to play with cardboard. We had like coloring dots when you use your heat sinks or whatever that kind of stuff. Um, but it's, it's using that for your role playing game, which you know who doesn't love doing that kind of. Thing? Well, I mean, and and John would be the first one to say this. There likely wouldn't be a Blades, but there definitely wouldn't be a Blades that looks the way it does if there was no Apocalypse World. I mean, it was Apocalypse World that started it all. Vincent McGay Baker, I mean, seismic influence on the entire industry. Um, But also, and Gaz, you said this, and I agree, Blades is not PBTA. It's not powered by the Apocalypse, even though that's maybe where it started. Um, It is definitely its its own animal. And... Somebody coming from running PBTA, this is going to be a jump for them, too, because this mm-hmm. plays very different than an Apocalypse game. Not in a good or bad way. It's just it's as different from it's as different from Apocalypse World as it is from 5e. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. M- most of the complaints I get from people about Blades, actually, or, or questions and queries, probably more than complaints, but saying, oh, this didn't work and this happened and that doesn't work. 90% of the time, my answer is, well, the, the, that's not what the game says. You know, you're doing things which, you, you know... Your GM or whoever's decided you're going to do, but that's not what the game tells you to do. So that's not the, the bad experience you're having isn't the game's fault. Try playing Blades next time. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem exists between the keyboard and the chair. And exactly. <laughs> okay. Uh, right. Well, we did promise more than one game. Uh, as you mentioned, we're about half an hour in. So we should definitely pick at least a second game. And I think just for chalk and cheese basis, and because I know that Basil have opinions on this as, as well as I do, and I'm hopefully agree. Call of Cthulhu which is an entirely different role-playing experience, which is very much like, well, not like D&D, but it is of a traditional, there's a keeper who has secrets, and your players are, to a degree, not adversarial, but are aware that the, the, the scenario is out to get you, and you have a big old list of skills, and all those other like good favourite things that people like, it has percentile dice for this mechanic, so that if you have 50% history, you know you've got 50-50 chance when you roll the dice and it's pass-fail. There's no other weirdness. Uh, so, as you're screwing your face up, I, I feel like <laughs> I should start with you. <laughs> yeah, not too good at Call of Cthulhu poker. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm probably, I, have, I have loves and hates for Call of yeah. Cthulhu. Yeah, well, long-time listeners know my rants. Uh, just really briefly, for Craig's benefit, I suppose, most of all. Some of it's personal choice, right? I mean, horror's not my thing. So if horror's not my thing, am I ever going to love Call of Cthulhu? Probably not. 
realistically. It just doesn't have the tropes that I'm, that I'm into. So there's that. The other thing, it's just massively overdone. I'm just sick of Cthulhu at this point. I mean, really am. I, I had never heard of HP Lovecraft before Call of Cthulhu came along. And as an avid role player, I bought Call of Cthulhu back in 1981. Games Workshop imported it into this country and I was going to buy every game that was released. Something I can't do these days. <laughs> but, but back in the early 80s, I could own role playing. I could have the library. And Call of Cthulhu was definitely one of the ones that was in there. So, you know, I'm going to get it. But I'd never heard of H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, I don't think to this day I've necessarily read a Lovecraft story all the way through. Maybe the ones that have been in some of the rule books, maybe the Call of Cthulhu itself. And I've played loads of Cthulhu adjacent stuff, but it's absolutely everywhere. So just oversaturation. I, I actually can't believe it's been as successful as it has for about 40, 50 years, almost the entire length of role-playing now. You still can't move for it. There's still games coming out with Cthulhu in the title, some of which I enjoy, genuinely. Evil Hat's take on Cthulhu, the recent one I did, which I want to call Fate of Cthulhu, yep. is a really, really interesting take. I enjoyed Cthulhu Tech back in the probably the 90s now. And, and uh, famously, I think, or famously within that small circle, my favourite role-playing session ever was a Call of Cthulhu session. However... The mental illness thing, no thank you. Yep. I don't think it's fun. The death spiral to sanity or hit points has become a comedy trope where you've got people running around 1920s Boston collecting dynamite and machine guns, waiting for the GM to announce that there was it, someone's a shog off. And it's like a pantomime. I don't know if pantomimes have crossed the Atlantic as an idea of, oh, <laughs> of yeah. entertainment, but it's... It, uh, it's behind you. Ooh. And everyone at conventions just sort of laughs along. As someone first of all goes mad, then someone tries to die in an interesting way. I, I can't role play in Call of Cthulhu. I can't role play because to, to pursue the scenario, I have to put my brain in gear to try and solve the puzzle. My character, does, my character is literally just a bunch of skills, half of which are in things that don't ever happen in the game, like headbutt. I don't think that's in there now anymore, but you know, it used to be a distinction between headbutt, kicking and punching in a game which is ostensibly not about combat. Oh, really? You sure it isn't? Because I've got a combat section here and hit points. Uh, but at least I'm not rolling accountancy, which I might have at 76%, but it's such a binary system that um, I'm going to fail it. And that won't matter anyway, because then I'll have a luck roll. And if I don't have that, I'll have a spot hidden roll. And if all of those fail, the GM's going to have to give me the clue anyway, because otherwise the game doesn't go anywhere. It's just a nonsense. <laughs> The idea, and, it, and it's a nonsense because it came from D&D, which was a bunch of people forming a party to go and solve a problem. That doesn't happen in the Lovecraft stories. You don't have a bunch of people forming a party to go and solve a problem in a lawless state. It's just, it's fundamentally, it needs, it needs a Blades in the Dark treatment, <laughs> which is, <laughs> it needs a game writing for it yep. that approaches it in the same way that Blades does heists. It's about that. It's got really ancient gaming technology, which has hampered it its whole existence. Other people have done a far, far better job of doing that kind of cosmic horror game. It's uh, For me, it just embodies an awful lot of stuff that has made the hobby really, really go down a, a cul-de-sac for a long time. Massive skill lists. Listening to the GM spin you a yarn. Epic campaigns that you never finish. Handouts that you can just metagame your way around. I, yeah, it's not for me, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> really, I was going to ask. I was going to ask you to tell me what you thought. <laughs> Stop saying on the fence, um, so I'm going to throw a couple things because I play Call of Cthulhu on the channel, and I've run Call of Cthulhu several times, and I am not going to disagree with anything you said. In the same way that we said system matters, blades. I will say with Call of Cthulhu, the GM matters. Mm. Um, that's going to influence things more than anything. It, basic role playing, which is you know the guts of Call of Cthulhu, even though Call of Cthulhu came first, really basic role playing is the system that 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 it now stands on. Uh, it, it, it's it's aged, it's old, it's old, it's more tradition, it's far more traditional. In fact, it's the basis of a lot of other trad games. The you know the concept of BRP and in the right hands, it's fantastic. And but but it doesn't belie the the game. Right, so we talk. We spent thirty minutes talking about how everything mechanically in Blades holds up and and supports the type of game we're going to play—a heist game. Basic role playing is going back to the idea of the hero system and the idea of GURPS, which is we're going to have a generic system and then we can play anything in it. And so it's it, 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 system doesn't matter as much here. But 
the the GM does. So the the reason I still play Call of Cthulhu and love Call of Cthulhu one, I do have to say the percentile system is super easy for everybody. True. How, how good am I at fighting? I'm at fifty percent. I have a fifty fifty chance. Everybody understands that. Um, even if you don't understand percentages, you you can understand that, right? So that's great. And for some players, you know, it's easier for them to go to a character sheet and see their character statted out with, you know, these 50 different skills to be able to piece it together, as opposed to saying, you know, Craig, I think I might be good at accounting, even though there isn't an accounting skill because I did this, this, and this, which is a more modern take on how to handle that type of thing. The other thing that Call of Cthulhu has for it is a ton of support. Mm. And that is something I really enjoy because I don't from scratch homebrew like I used to do when I was a kid. I usually will take a scenario, take the premise of the scenario, the NPCs in the scenario, and and then run it from there. And we'll go I will go off book from that scenario faster than anybody. And you know, by page three of the scenario, my, you know, knives and Arthotep looks a lot different than yours, right? But um so that, that's everything that's going for it. Um, but if you have a GM that runs the game the way Baz talked about, it sucks. It's, a, it's just not fun. But with the right GM and ultimately then, of course, the right players, it, it can be it can be fantastic. But um, that's where we're we're doing more than we have should have to. As a GM, we're doing more than we should have to as players at this at this point in things. Um, you listed off a whole bunch, Baz, of, of <laughs> other type of Cthulhu games. The other one I do want to give a shout out to is Trail of Cthulhu. I think is also one to check yeah. out. Um, the gumshoe system is very interesting. There's a lot of people that don't like it. I do. I do enjoy the gumshoe system. So Trail of Cthulhu is the only other one I would throw there. How about for you, Gaz? What is what is your take? We know we know Baz is. <laughs> I was waiting to see which side of the fence I had to take. <laughs> I'm currently in a Cthulhu group online. Obviously, play sort of every couple of weeks, maybe maybe once a month. And we've got a rotating GM chair, so we went nice. through the the Wicked City Berlin stuff, uh, and we three of us each took a, a scenario each and ran them. And now we're going through Australis, playing in Australia. So yeah, a lot of what Bass said is true. Like, and I think this is true of Call of Cthulhu, particularly. I've had discussions with Mike Mason about this, and in terms of like any game needs a good GM and, and so on and so forth. But I do agree with you, Craig, that it's, it's specifically Call of Cthulhu, the, there's more honest, there's more weight on the GM, I think, to make it good. Just that the game itself isn't giving you a lot necessarily. So yeah, I've been playing games with people like, uh, you know, Mike, Paul Fricker as well, who wrote it, Scott Doward, who wrote Blackwater Creek, uh, Lynn Hardy is the associate editor, Jason Durrell, who wrote BRP. I've played with all these people and in all of them, I can say I'm pretty certain, memory might be fading me now, but I'm pretty certain every single game I've played with those people when it comes to a social interaction, they'll say make some kind of social role. They don't look at the rules and say, should this be fast talk or persuade or charm? Because as an experience at the table, that's just like if you've got persuade but you haven't got fast talk and you've got the wrong one, you know, that's, why would you make your scenario fall over at that point because you've got the wrong skill? So I do know that from Mike and Paul's point of view, they had to make the game backward compatible. So that's why a lot of the old tech's still in there. You're just kind of bound by the, the artifact you've got on this, this length of service. So there's, there's limitations there. But I think some of the, the new tech actually makes it, it makes 7th edition more playable for me anyway. So spending luck and pushing rolls. And I have had it at conventions where a player says, well, I don't like those. It's like, well, you don't use them then. Mm-hmm. That's it, there you go. But it's an optional rule, and if any other players want to spend luck, they can do. Well, but uh, that's not fair. Oh, it's completely fair. You can use them if you want. If you don't want to, don't use them. I mean, that, what, do you want, what do you want from me? And it's an optional rule. <laughs> Specifically in there is optional, so do what you want. Why are we still talking? <laughs> yeah, they, they make the experience of using the system better at the table. I agree. So as an example, in the last session we played, there was a thing in the pit, and it was, it was part of it's that thing you mentioned, Baz, where the GM said at one point, oh, it's a shoggoth. It's like, oh, do you know what? That, that just diminished it a little bit for me. I was happier when he was using all these descriptive terms yeah. and every time described it differently because of this royally massive teeth and faces and whatever. It's like, I was in the zone before you mentioned what it was. Like, I'm happier without that. One of the players was trying to get out, had been attacked, taken a lot of damage and was going to fall unconscious because there were zero hit points. And it's like, oh, what happens to you? Like, do you fall in or not? Or what's going to happen because you failed your dodge roll? I said, well, just push the roll. Just make, and you're not supposed to, you know, push combat rolls, but like, it's a lot more interesting. We say, well, Give him a lane push it, and if he fails it, he's fallen backwards into the pit. 
and if he succeeds it, he managed to scrabble his way out before he's lapsed into unconsciousness. So that presented like a good role-playing moment. And a little bit later on outside, there was kind of a doctor that was the cause of all this. And, uh, you know, obviously our, the, the other character we've got like bleeding out and dying on the floor. And we were looking at our meager hit, like first aid and medical skills on our character sheet going, well, I can't even use medicine if I had it. It has to be first aid. That's what the book says. But the, the sort of the NPC doctor's like, well, you know, I can have a look. <laughs> and we both kind of looked at each other. And it's like, ah, oh. like he's clearly a baddie. He's clearly going to get some like Shoggoth juice or something and inject him with it. But do we let him go for it? And it was a matter of, you know, met that psychology role. We failed it. Went, okay, seems fair enough. Uh, and so that's, you know, a couple of instances in, in that one scene where actually using the rules as written gave us points of divergence. So get like, open that portal up for like, do we let the mad doctor help our friend or do we let him die and that kind of stuff. So those bits of rules, I think, do help make the game better. Um, I'm not saying it's perfect or it's like Blades or anything like that, but uh, I think having the newer tech in there saves BRP in ways that when I try and play sixth, because some people still cleave to it, yeah. you know, you get asked for too many rolls, you haven't got the right skill, you fail the roll, nothing happens, the gem's not set up the scenario or his expectations correctly so that doors are closed off to you, which shouldn't be. You know, all those things are GM solvable, but the system's neither helping nor detracting at that point. It's just there in the background and it's up to our person to deliver the game experience. Yeah, and everything you just said, Gaz, really reinforces what, what, what I was talking about. Like that Berlin book, uh, that's uh, David Larkin, I think, who wrote that, right? That's um, right. Uh, incredible content incredible content and 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 makes makes call of cthulhu better right uh because it's 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 a wonderful source book with some really great adventures inside of it the other thing is you just think about the talent you just talked about right mike lynn paul i mean these are really incredibly talented creators and they are happen to be focused on call of cthulhu the stuff that Lynn Hardy does, I, I can't get enough of it. Um, I love how she thinks. I love how she designs scenarios. I love her approach. I would love to play with her because I, I, I think there's a divergence between what I read in the page and what happens at the table when, when her and Paul are at the table. And you know that firsthand, Gaz. You know, at the same time, you know, if you want to run it like a game of paranoia, then do that too, right? If that's what you find joy in. But it doesn't have to be. It can be. I have run several extremely emotionally intense Call of Cthulhu games that wasn't about bouts of madness. What we say without putting words in everybody else's mouth is that you kind of like get those in spite of the system rather than yeah. because, you know, it's not. It's a perfectly workaday old school system. It's fine. It does what it does, but it's not it's not helping you make better games. Right. So yeah, I think I would the other thing I would agree with you is that there's a lot of good content as well. Like there's, you know, I mean, I'd, I'd slightly disagree. We've, we've had Dave on the show a couple of times, so apologies, Mr. Lockings, but I, I have issues with the scenarios in the book for the German book, for example. But by issues, I mean, I had to change my scenario for what I prefer to do at a table or things I would or wouldn't do. So as best as it's all preferences and yeah. personal choice to a degree. But there are things in the book that are something like make, make a knowledge roll, and if you fail, give the players the clue anyway. It's like, why are you asking me to make a knowledge roll? Then that's not just take that sentence out. Of the, you know, so it's not game breaking stuff. But there's there's bits to it I think that still hang over called the Cthulhu scenarios that are just the ways people have been used to playing for generations, almost like you know, certainly decades. And I think there's definite benefit, perhaps, of some a newer writer coming in and, and approaching it in a, a blaze of the dark way, or getting someone. A scenario writer, you know, like Gareth Ryder Hanrahan, for example, yes. who does a lot of great stuff, great work. Graham Walmsley, I'd put his name out there for Cthulhu Dark. Yep. Yes. As a treatment yeah. of the game. Oh, that's so good. Yeah, correct. So there is there is a lot of good content for Call of Cthulhu. For, for the sort of games I'd like, I'd like to see it more streamlined and directed into gameable content. So there's certain books you'll pick up and it might tell you about um, diseases in Bolivia for a page. You're like, well, this is all cool, but... It's not very player-facing. Yeah. And I maybe needed one disease. <laughs> I didn't, didn't need, you know. It's four pages, Des. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of people like that, you know. Yep. To, to go to Blades, where we're saying, like, people are asking, well, what do the Dimmer Sisters look like? And what does this look like? And what, who are the Blue Coats? And there's not enough information here. Uh, they want something more like the Call of Cthulhu experience, where they pick up a book and it's got exacting detail of 
the, the culture, the place and the world, you know, like the politics, like every conceivable thing you can imagine, like more detailed than any Wikipedia page about your topic, so that when you're at the table and players ask you stuff, you don't have to worry about making things up or uh, am I getting the verisimilitude right or is it is it authentic? Because you've, you've got all that information given to you, I guess. That's a plus side for Cthulhu gaming for me, actually, is um, I've learned a lot from being a, a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> the University of Gaming has been very kind to me. And, um, and it, to this day, if you, you can browse Twitter and uh, people will see like a sort of Fortean kind of Times headline or something in a paper or a strange photo or a weird headline and go, hey, this looks like a great Call of Cthulhu scenario. And you know for a fact that there'll be many, many people will actually be hitting Google and doing their research. And and you're right, Call of Cthulhu rule books are better than Wikipedia. But the but as Ken Hyatt often says, the planet Earth has got all of the resources you would ever need for any campaign ever. Yeah. Um, and you can go down to lovely little rabbit holes and have that kind of lonely fun as a Call of Cthulhu keeper and just generating entire dissertations worth of stuff about some remote tribe that probably will never actually come out of the table. And yep. that's where I have to sort of separate myself from it. I just don't think it lands at, at the player's feet. And, and the, other, the other thing I can't believe we haven't even, like when we were listing off games, Baz, is we didn't even, and this is a whole show on itself, is Delta Green. Oh, Delta yeah. Green in its own way yeah. solves uh, a lot of the... Solves a lot of that. Yeah. ...of the challenges we have. You know, you, in Delta Green, you don't have to go... F- talk your bartender into being the new character because the last character died that doesn't happen in delta green um so that's another one people that are listening should should look into i'm a big fan of delta green yeah yeah really good interestingly uses the old system yes <laughs> that, that, that was my point I was going to thank you gentlemen you set me up you set me up nicely i was going to mention delta green uh, and mention that the thing i don't like about it now is that you can't use luck and uh, push your rolls except of course as we're all experienced games, you can. Like, like it's dead easy to port it in. You can just say that you're using that in your game, uh, and that makes it a whole lot better. But yeah, it has stuff like if you've got skills of a certain level, you just get the thing. Yeah. You know, if you've got computing at sixty, you can hack a basic PC. You don't need to make a roll for that. You just do it. You just get it. Yeah, Delta Green is amazing. And again, it's that it is a bit lonely fun. That there's loads of stuff I've read that I've never actually got to the table. If you know what I mean, like, but I enjoyed reading it. It's good reading. Yeah. It's it's what you want from your gaming book, I guess, in, in that respect. Yeah, so Coco there's still there's still a lot of good stuff there. I think I think you're right, Bas. It is worn sometimes and I wish people would play it straight. I think that's the same sort of comments I have about Paranoia, for example. Yes. Which if you if you play it as if your characters are like lives in mortal peril and just let amusing situations happen at the table, it works much better than trying to be funny. Yeah. Which is which is true of all games, but Paranoia specifically seems to have a problem with people trying to be funny. Mm. And they're not comedy writers. So just let the situation speak for themselves. Excellent. Right. Well, I'm determined to get a third game in as well. Why not? Let's push that roll. <laughs> <laughs> I failed my dodge. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so Savage Worlds is another game which, I mean, it doesn't really sit between the two of those, which I've already mentioned, but it's got extra features in than a standard BRP game would, for example. There's lots of little subsystems and bells and whistles. It promotes action-adventure. And it definitely benefits from people coming up with cool things they do for tricks or stunts or whatever because there's some mechanical support for it. So, for example, in D&D, you could say you're picking sand up and throwing it in someone's face and then you're going to stab them. That's the thing you do, and then you make your attack roll. But if you do it in Savage Worlds, there are things called tricks which you can do which will make your opponent either vulnerable or distracted. And then you can make your fighting roll and stab them as well, for example. So, yeah, I feel like I should hand back to you guys again so I don't go off on one, but... Yeah, Savage Worlds, great for action adventure. Why is it different, better? Again, I'll get the same old question, but why is it? Why not use D&D if you're going to play a Pirates game, for example? Why would you use Savage Worlds? i got to hear Baz's take. <laughs> well, credit where it's due, Craig. You had Shane on your podcast. Oh, it must have been a little while back now. Yeah, well, well over a year ago, yeah. Yeah, Shane Lacey Hensley, creator of Savage Worlds, and many other fine things. Um, and that was a brilliant interview. I hope you don't mind me saying I thought it was really, really interesting. And Shane was a great guest. Very open, uh, very grounded, clearly still rolls dice every week. Yep. Always say that about the people you end up talking to in this gaming. We loved it so much we got him onto our podcast and he, and he, he was just as generous with us. Yeah. And I, I think we probably asked him exactly the same questions. And um, I have a lot of time for Shane Hensley and a lot of time for Pinnacle. 
given the atmosphere that we sometimes live in. Sometimes it's an industry, mostly it's a hobby. Sometimes the big players can make decisions that make you feel excluded from the community. Pinnacle, just just don't have that issue. You're in with the good crowd if you're playing Savage. I love that, I love that it's game first. Mm-hmm. Not afraid to be a game. Not afraid to be a game. In fact, leans into it being a game. It's happy with miniatures. It's happy with cards. It's happy with gamer bling. It's happy with being a big demo game, but it's also happy with being like small and just two or three of you doing something fairly low key. Yeah, it does action adventure, but that's a kind of a, that's not even a genre now, is it? That's more like the condiment that I pour over every other type of game I play. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're a PC, you want to have some agency. You want to be able to be reasonably competent. You want to be able to like survive consequences more than for just a few minutes. And Savage does that with you. And it's a generic game which is not normally going to be my sort of thing at all. However, the the settings that have been done for Pinnacle are always generic settings with a twist that takes them out yes. of being just generic. So 50 Fathoms isn't just a pirate game. Even when they did Pirates of the Spanish Main, which was licensed, that wasn't just a pirate's game. Slipstream is not just a retro sci-fi game. And all of those things, and especially Deadlands. Deadlands is like, you know, they're... Um, well, it's like... It, Deadlands on its own is is just a monster of legacy for for gaming and playing Savage Worlds, playing Deadlands with Savage Worlds makes Deadlands playable, despite what some people say from back in the day. Yes, God, if the creator says he's not doing it the old way. Why on earth are you doing it the old way? <laughs> uh, uh, Savage is still going. I, I find it so hard to believe that it's still going, and it's and not because it's old and rickety, but it just keeps refreshing. It's still it a, it's still easy access. It's still cheap to get into. It's still very, very playable. It still gives you a, a, a level of fun that, that it's got like this glass bottom. You can't go too far down on the fun with that game. I've never had a terrible Savage Worlds game. Yep. I've had loads of brilliant ones, but even the average ones have always been great. <laughs> so, you know, it, its run rate is something else for just delivering, especially at conventions, especially one shots. But then also the getting into the meat of those big plot point campaigns. I've run 50 fathoms more than once start to finish. It's wonderful. Wow wonderful i love it so i the thing the thing that i always say so i i like savage worlds i I, there's a lot of games i love and and i really really like savage worlds and i think the best thing going for it and i think you really hinted on it baz is savage worlds is mechanically fun Mm. and i don't know whether you can realize that until you play it but when you're playing at a good table of Savage Worlds, it, I can have fun playing a game. It has nothing to do with the mechanics. Like Savage Worlds mechanically is fun. And that gets to that floor that you just said, Baz, which is it, it, you're guaranteed a certain level of fun because mm. of how the game is designed. And that's awesome. That's incredible. And then to have a whole nother layer, they took the GURPS concept. Like GURPS itself was fine. What made GURPS, GURPS for me as a kid was the, setting books right that's when GURPS became GURPS and that's where the greatness was I think Savage Worlds is the same way the guts are fine it's fun it's mechanical but when you go to Deadlands that's where that's where you find Savage Worlds right when when you go to Fathoms that's where you find Savage Worlds I mean hell they made Rifts playable like you got credit to that right that's that's no small accomplishment yeah I think it's I think it's much easier for somebody who's used to traditional games to get into Right, because it's 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 not that big of a jump from BRP or from you know Dungeon and Dragons or other old school, you know OSC type games, and that's great. But it also has some innovations in it, and and and, and um, I don't know. There's something like the different die sizes. Just that is, is so tangible, and 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 just fun. The the consistent target numbers is fun. Um, yeah, I, I love it. I think that they're done great things. I mean, we talk about, you know, you can't believe that Savage Worlds is still around. I think it's more popular now than it's ever been. Probably. Yeah. And that's because of the quality of work from Pinnacle. At, like, you back Pinnacle and Kickstarter, it's going to come on time, if not early. Everything you get is going to be high quality. The art's going to be great. It's going to be a book that's been edited, God forbid. It's going to have all the bling and the chits and everything that you need to run it. There's an integrity that comes out of Pinnacle that that you cannot cannot deny. It's one of the most reliable companies out there as far as quality and consistency and 
you know, you're just, I'll back, I back everything he puts out just because I know I'm going to get good stuff. Yeah, we, we just finished our, um, well, my first season of uh, 50 Fathoms, so I started doing it in two halves or something, so they kind of got halfway through it. It's the, it's the kind of flexibility of what you can do. You have a bunch of different edges, which are like feats, I guess, and other games or whatever else, but but they're kind of what makes your character. Some people have sort of challenged Savage to say you all you all end up the same, or you, you know your stats look the same, and the skills are, you know, there's not enough of them or something, but it's all about the edges and how you build your build your abilities up to do stuff. So he kind of had a, a duelist. He was really good with a sword. He could dance away from people and first strike them when they tried to rush onto him. So he'd constantly disengage and get people to run on the end of his blade, which was quite piratey. That was cool. We had a big chunk of a walrus man who was just going and smashing things up with his axe, but was stupid. So he's real easy for my NPCs to trick and, you know, distract him all the time. As you say, it's all those bits and pieces uh, and little subsystems that actually make... That's the bells and whistles of uh, yep. Savage for me. If you're just rolling fighting rolls all the time, then it's as dull as any other game would be. It's doing all the other bits and pieces and, and ganging up and look at the initiative because it's based on cards, so it goes kind of highest to lowest in reversed order of suits. So you can kind of look and go, I'm really near the end of the round, but if I do this thing to give my friend a bump, there's a chance he's going to get to go first. And then, you know, this... so you start chatting amongst yourselves at the table and doing bits of tactics, and the cards are all laid out so you know who's next and where the bad guys are going. And it's just a, a fun experience. It is. And you've got bennies, right? And bennies are great and really kind of one of the earliest forms of meta currency credit, you know, credit on that with Deadlands, um, where, which is where that came from. But here's the other thing I'll say as a huge compliment to Savage Worlds. You're walking through a convention hall where everybody's playing a bunch of role playing games, a bunch of one shots. And if you hear just screaming like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. Someone's exploded their die. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, exploding dice and that type of variance doesn't work in all types of games. But when you're playing a pulp game, which is what Savage Worlds is, regardless of the setting, like that, it creates amazing moments. Amazing moments. Even when it's the villain, the adversary who's exploding dice and suddenly doing 22 damage to you, you know, it's just, it's, it's a, I keep coming back to the same thing. It's a mechanically fun system. And that, that carries a lot. Yeah. That's, that adds to the um sorry about that. No, so I was just agreeing. <laughs> <laughs> One of the bits of the scenario they were sort of like trying to break into a mansion to, to get some guy. And uh the the heroic fence are like dived in through the windows because he's got heroic as a hindrance, so of course he does. And then three guys attack him and the first one just took him out completely, just like absolutely pasted him. So he jumps in going, I'm here to kill you, Scarlet Pimpel or whatever. And the good bad guys went, That's it, you're down. Uh, and then so the scenario stopped being about assassinating this guy and more about how do we get him out of here? Which is awesome. And, you know, one guy's disguised as a waiter and stuff and dragging his body. Oh, I'll clean this mess up for you. And, you know, it just leads, those exploding dice moments do lead to cool bits in the game oh. that make it more interesting. Even, like, as you say, when it's the villains that roll them yep. rather than the uh, the players. In fact, more so often when it's the bad yep. guys that have got something out of nowhere. Yeah, tons of bit. The other bit I'll, I'll call out is... Um, other sort of tasks you have dramatic tasks, yeah, which are basically like skill challenges. Which good friend of the show, Guy Milder, for the Burn After Running blog, he he loves that kind of stuff. So put plenty of those in. But it's a good way of doing that broad brush thing, which takes you somewhere towards Blades in the Dark in terms of doing a thing without having to kind of roll all the minutiae in every single spot hidden roll along the way kind of thing. It's just kind of okay. You guys have got three rounds. I need fifteen successes or reses off you. Uh, what are you doing? Your ship's in this fiery lake, and you need to get this woman off this ship that's going down. It's been holding the side, and there's sharks, and oh, there's a storm as well. So what do you do? And you just present an exciting and interesting situation with features in it, and then the players pick whatever skill they want and come up with their solutions, and then they roll the dice for it and tell you. And you know, it, it can look like it's going bad, then some of these dice explode. It looks like it's going well, and then someone fails, and then it's yeah. you know, and it goes backwards and forwards. So again, it's, it's a bit of a subsystem within a game, but it. It allows you to have big scenes and the system provides you with fun at the table. Especially when you writers table it, right? To your point, what I love in those challenges is everybody's contributing and say, okay, you know, you added two raises to this. Why? What happened? You know, and someone can just do a few sentences or, or role play the whole thing out. And it's, it can be very exciting and you can just handle skill challenges purely mechanically and get through it because that's not what, where you want to play right now and you want to get to the next thing or it can be, you know just a, a narrative role-playing bonanza which is fun hmm. there's a there's a bunch of stuff in savage worlds that is done so well and so cleanly dare i say elegant that you as a gm you look forward to them happening yeah so everybody looks forward to a combat 
which is not true of every game. It's like, oh, do we have to? Um, <laughs> everyone looks forward to a combat. And in, in Savage, if you're playing, I don't know, you're playing World War II, Normandy, if you're a squad leader and you've got four riflemen and two scouts and a, and a machine gunner, you've got all of those characters. And that's not even onerous. That's like, yeah, let's do it. Let's have those allies because we've just made the game more fun. Yep. And there are almost no other games where that makes the game more fun. <laughs> you know, Even just down to have a ranger with a bear is normally a pain in the ass in most games. Um, but the allies rules, it's all there. And then if it really escalates and you want to do a big pitched battle, you basically want to make a war game out of it. You can either make a war game out of it. It mm-hmm. will stand up perfectly well like that. And I've r- played games set in Vietnam with Hueys going over jungles. Lovely. Or you've got your token system for your pitch battle. I know Gaz manages to integrate into his into his smaller scale stuff to big scale to small scale, and it's it's in the tightest little rule book. Yeah, it's still a little rule book. It's so tight. It's it's like the Porsche of gaming. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and everything in it you want to use. Everything in it you want to use. None of it is like, oh no, we're starting a grapple. What are we going to do? <laughs> it's got a great chase system. God forbid. It's, exactly. It's a chase system for a start. I, mean, I don't even think the other ones in other games are systems. Yeah. So it's and it's a good one. Yes. Yeah, it, it there's nothing you don't look forward to using. It is a big toolbox. All the tools in it stand alone from each other. You can you can use whichever bits you want. But you're not even really having to sit down and do a lot of work as a gym. Go. Oh, which tools shall I use and which tools shan't I? Even that element of it is really well managed. It's a brilliantly managed game that genuinely lets you GM and lets you play and. To Gaz's really, really early point about throwing sand in someone's face, I, I do a lot of stuff with new role players in a school, and there's nothing better than, than a 10-year-old, their eyes going wide when you say, what do you want to do? And they, they've maybe been trained to look at their sheet to see what they can do. But then in this game, it's like they narrate it, and it's really old school, this. They narrate it, you GM it, and you've got the tools on your side of the screen to be able to come back with a really cool response that makes them delighted. Yep. And they feel like a badass. Yeah. You know, so when they say they want to throw sand in someone's face, you're there. It's got you covered. There are a lot of games that can't handle that, and it's like for me and Gaz, this is a bit of an acid test now, isn't it? Of games, can it can it handle that kind of stuff? Yep. Not only handle it, but celebrate it and support it exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it's the it's the internal consistency. I think you mentioned earlier about Bleds, Greg. All the stuff fits together. Like at one point, someone he was a really big Fate fan. Uh, and he said to me, yeah, but a lot of this stuff in Savage Worlds is just like plus or minus two. And it's like, well, okay, if fate, you use an aspect, what do you get? Plus two? I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> you know, you're basically saying fate's great because you get plus two, but Savage Worlds is rubbish because you get plus two. I mean, come on, guy. It just internally works. Like, all the bits seem to fit together. Yeah. I've not found any jarring bits yet anyway, and I've played it for many years now since it first came out, in fact. Uh, and I find it really useful for playing... Like any setting, cowboys, pirates, Indiana Jones, like anything. Why I say action adventure, it tends to be like on, on a journey, things happening, you know, punch ups are happening or shootouts or whatever it might be, that kind of stuff. But yeah, I fit it to all kinds of different settings, you know, sort of like Flash Gordon or whatever it might be. It, and it holds up. And the only thing, as far as GM advice here, real quick, one, just go grab it. You'll have a ton of fun running it. The only thing I'll tell you that I struggled with at first, um, and I still sometimes struggle with a little bit, so spend time, is is understanding how wounds work um, and just the damage system on it. it. It's it's different, and it takes a little while to get your head around it. Once you do, you never have to look at it again, right? But um, th- those are gears that, that that took me a little while to grasp onto. But the good news is, is once you do, you you, you get it. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, it is different. Uh, a couple of quick tips, I'd say, for running Savage, because I do it a lot, is uh, if you're running at a convention, you seasoned characters. So you've basically got four levels up, or, or even up to veteran, depending. But don't give people novice characters, because they're quite vanilla. And giving your players more things to do with their character, or more special bits, is better. Uh, and it's not too onerous. Like I said, you know, sometimes if you get a fourth level... 13th age sheet in a convention, there seem to be a lot of abilities on there. Like It's not quite as difficult as that. There's, there's fewer things in Savage Tips, so I do that. And I advocate Card Monkey as well. So you, you use cards for initiative, so give that to one of your players. You make them Card Monkey. So it's their job to dish out the initiative cards and, and pull them back again when they've been used. Little bits like that. But a lot of this stuff we've talked about, I think, over the, the last hour or so is, is just getting your players on board with things. You know, having that... We mentioned for Blaze Negotiations, which makes it sound like you're around a boardroom and you spend an hour hammering things out and getting the lawyers involved, which, 
Like it shouldn't take that long, right? You you trust your players and, and things just happen smoothly. But for skill challenges in this, for like what skill you should use in Call of Cthulhu, for your stuff in Blades, uh, I advocate for all you just like trust players more yeah. and, and let them know they can trust you. You know, you're not out to get them. Your NPCs might be able to get their characters at certain points or things like that. You know, the, the elements might want to bring them down, but you know, you as a person and the players as people, you're all there to try and create the story. Dare I say it together? That'll start off another um, Twitter war as people say it's not about stories, but you know, that's a podcast <laughs> for another time. Excellent. Right. Well, I noticed that the time is indeed against us. There's not a lot we can do about that. We can't make a dodge roll to get out of this one. So. Thanks very much for coming on, Craig. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I, I can't wait. Uh, if you guys ever need me to come back on again, I will. I will move heaven and earth to do it. This was as this was even more fun than I expected, and I had very high expectations. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. <laughs> very generous of you. Well, yeah, we'll definitely get you back. Although we said that about Vincent and Meg Baker, we've not managed that yet. So we need to make that happen as well. Put it in the diary, Baz. Oh, you need to go. You need to get them back before you get me back. We'll get them first, right? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're actually interesting. <laughs> We did get Meg seemed quite keen to run a game for us, so maybe we can get all of us together in a cast. That might be something we could do at one point. There we go. Problem solved. Great. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. If you've got any comments about anything we've said or any thoughts or things we've missed or other games you'd like us to talk about, then drop us a line or visit the site. And, of course, check out all of Craig's wonderful content. I'll put some links in the show notes so you can go find him. Until next time, dear listeners, goodbye. Goodbye.